You've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. Cripple Content Creations and Podcast Jukebox present Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability, sexuality, and everything in between. This is a show that started out only talking about sex and disability. It was a podcast that was dedicated to exploring the ins and outs of sex and disability because we don't talk about that hardly at all. But as the show has grown, I realized that Disability After Dark could shine a light on so many other things about disability we don't talk about, and that was really exciting. So, now, this show is a show that will shine a light on the experience of disability, whether we're talking about sexuality, accessibility, or anything and everything in between. Come shine a bright light on all things disability with me, your host, Andrew Gerza. Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza. Shining a bright light on sex and disability. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. I want to tell you all about a really awesome deal that I got from my friends and new sponsors, Adam and Eve, the number one adult toy superstore. They reached out to me and they said, Andrew, we love Disability After Dark. We love your show. We love what you're doing. And we were wondering if you wanted to run some ads for us. And I was like, fuck yes, I do. But what are my awesome listeners going to get if I run ads for you? What are they going to get out of this? And they came back with a really fantastic deal that I want to share with you right now. I hope you're getting comfy, cozy, and crippled because this deal is pretty great. If you go to AdamEve.com, you can pick out almost any item in the store, almost any one item in the store, for 50% off. That means you can get one dildo, one lube, and one thing of lingerie, if you want, for 50% off. And then, once you get that one item for half price, they throw in even more free stuff. Let me tell you all about it. Okay, so you got your one item at half price in your bag, and you're ready to go, but guess what? This offer also includes 10 free items on top of that that other item. So you get one free item for penis havers, one free item for vulva havers, one free item for couples, and then you also get six free movies from the AdamEve.com website. You can get your favorite porn or an educational film. I love free movies. They're so awesome. This is such a great deal. And then, on top of that, you also get free shipping. What could be better? This is such a great offer. So, to redeem this great offer, what you're going to do is you're going to go to AdamEve.com, 
you're going to go to checkout and you're going to type in dark pod. That's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout. And you're going to get one item, almost anything in the store at 50% off. And then you're going to get those 10 free gifts, absolutely free as part of your offer. This is such a great deal. And this is just for you, Disability After Dark listeners. And I hope you run over to AdamEve.com and take advantage of it right now. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. My name is Andrew Gerza. I am your disability awareness consultant, your crippled content creator, and your disabled dick smith, all rolled in one, and I'm ready to shine a bright light on disability, sexuality, and everything in between with you today. So, get comfy, cozy, and crippled, and let's get started. I'm having kind of an off day as I record this. I'm recording, this is episode 164. I'm recording this a couple of weeks early because it's rainy and october right now as I record this, and I just am having a weird day with the tum-tums, and the IBS is happening, and it's flaring up, and so I was like, let's just record an episode and make ourselves... Busy, so we have stuff to do. So that is what I am doing, um, and I, I just kind of feel like poop, quite literally. And so it's, I'm sitting in my wheelchair in a diaper, hanging out, and just thinking about like, how there are moments with me, my disability experience where I can't take care of myself, and these, this is one of those moments. And I just wanted to share with you all that if you are disabled and you're listening, and if you need to wear a diaper or wear an incontinent pad or whatever it is you need to wear. I see you, I feel you, you're still sexy as fuck, and that's okay. The flip side of that is if you're taking care of somebody with a disability who is wearing a diaper or wearing a condom pad or having issues with their bowels or their bladder or whatever it is, if you're taking care of them, I know that it can be sometimes frustrating and you can get burned out taking care of somebody, especially if you're changing them five or six times a day, I know that, I've been there, but like, try... If you are the caregiver, to just be nice to them and stay calm. They, we feel a lot of shame around the bathroom. And, and I think we, we, I say we as the caregivers, people who provide care, need to remember that there's a lot of shame that, that disabled people feel when this happens. So you just be kind to them. If they're having a shitty day where they're shitting out of their assholes and they can't do anything about it because of their disabilities... Or something's happening to them with their body that feels weird and strange and is making them uncomfortable. Don't get mad at them if you have to clean them up with that. Think of it as, think of it as a way for you. You have the opportunity to make them feel better as the caregiver. So don't get mad. Don't get frustrated. Just understand for them that it's that there's a lot of a lot of emotional stuff going on there. But now let's get on with the show. Way, way back in episode 56 of this show, which was literally almost two years ago, I did a deep dive into some of the ways that the law, sex, and disability have come into conflict with each other. In episode 56, I looked a tiny bit into the forced sterilization of disabled people and how so much of that happened over time during the eugenics movement. I talk a little bit about the ugly laws in that episode and eugenics, and I talk a little bit about forced sterilization with the case I talk about, but I wanted to revisit the topic of forced sterilization, and more specifically, I wanted to look at some of the 
historical context of the of the act of forced sterilization and also explore how disabled people have been affected by this and how the law has been used against them to to champion forced sterilization and how in some cases, very few cases, the law has actually been used to help them not be forcibly sterilized. I also felt that it was important to look at cases that have happened in present day around forced sterilization and disability. Okay, so let's look at some of the history of forced sterilization. And forced sterilization, as we've said, is all part of the eugenics movement, which was the idea that you could basically design people by particular breeding and the best breeding. And it was it's a really old idea that if you breed right, you won't get the impurities of people. And I mean, it's a big deal in like Nazi Germany and a big deal in like a lot of scientific communities in the 19th century and the early 20th century because they wanted to find the best people for their race. And it was just, it's really problematic. And it basically was finding ways to keep the unwanted or undesirable members of society from procreating and passing particular traits on in the gene pool. So this meant that thousands of disabled people have been abused this way throughout history because nobody wanted the disabled genes or the, the feeble-minded genes to be passed on to their family or their, their lineage. So many, many disabled people were abused via forced sterilization throughout history. One of the most important figures in all of this was a girl by the name of Carrie Buck, who was born July 3rd, 1906, and was the plaintiff in one of the landmark U.S. Supreme Court cases called Buck v. Bell in 1927. A little bit more background on Carrie. She was born in Charlottesville, Virginia, the first of three children born to Emma Buck. Emma was her mother, and Emma was committed to the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and the Feeble-Minded after being accused of immorality, prostitution, and syphilis. After her birth, Carrie Buck was placed with her foster parents, John and Alice Dobbs. She attended public school and where she was noted to be an average student. When she was in sixth grade, the Dobbs removed her to have her help with housework. At 17, Carrie Buck became pregnant as a result of being raped by Alice Dobbs' nephew. And when, after she'd been raped, the Dobbs had her committed to the Virginia colony for epileptics and the feeble-minded on the grounds of feeble-mindedness, incorrigible behavior, and promiscuity. So basically, her foster parents had her committed because they thought she was promiscuous and they thought because she was promiscuous, she also must be feeble-minded. Um, no one talked about the fact that this poor girl had been raped by her relative, and that was not something... It was all her fault, of course, which is just, it's just disgusting and sad and horrible. Um, so she was, in, she was in the colony, and on March 28, 1924, Carrie gave birth to a daughter, Vivian. Since she'd been declared mentally incompetent to raise a child, her foster parents adopted the baby. It is thought that her foster parents committed her due to the family's embarrassment at her being pregnant and also the embarrassment that she got pregnant by via rape. 
So a few months after she got there and after she had the baby, Virginia passed a law that said that those deemed to be feeble-minded could be involuntarily sterilized. That's just gross and wrong and horrible. Um, the superintendent of the colony where Carrie was staying, Albert Pretty, who, if you look him up on Google, if you type in his name, he looks like a smug 1920s serial killer. I'm pretty sure he would be a serial killer if they had those in the 1920s. That was him, for sure. Um, so this this superintendent of the colony, Albert Pretty, approved that Carrie should be sterilized, but not before there was a trial to see if she could be sterilized under the law. Carrie had no voice or say in the matter and was actually just a guinea pig to test whether or not the law, this sterilization law, was unconstitutional or not. So much so that Albert Pretty hired legal counsel for himself and for Carrie, but the two lawyers talked and hung out all the time, which is super gross and super unethical. And basically it was a big boys show of like just douchey, like misogynistic lawyers hanging out, talking about how they could probably sterilize this girl. And it just was, it just feels really, it felt really, really gross then and now. And reading this stuff, I was like, oh no. But everything I read basically said that this trial was just basically a mock, it was it was a trial, but it was like, they had already decided that they were gonna sterilize her. So they were just going through the motions. During the trial, the lawyer for Albert Pretty in the state, Harry Laughlin, said of Carrie that Carrie Buck has a mental, a mental defectiveness evidenced by failure of mental development, having a chronological age of, not, of 18 years with a mental age of 9, according to Stanford Revision of Binet-Simon Test, and of social and economic inadequacy, has a record during life of immortality, prostitution, and untruthfulness, has never been self-sustaining, has had one illegitimate child, now about six months old, and supposed to be a mental defective. This girl came from a shiftless, ignorant, and worthless class of people, and it is impossible to get intelligent and satisfactory data. Further evidence of the hereditary nature of Carrie Buck's feeble-mindedness and moral delinquency consists in the fact that at a very early age of four years, she was taken from the bad environment furnished by her mother and given a better environment by her adoptive mother. The family history record and the individual histories of True demonstrate that the hereditary nature of feeble-mindedness and moral delinquency in Carrie Buck. She is therefore a potential parent of social inadequate or defective offspring. This statement Laughlin provided was based on information provided by the colony. He never once in his life met Carrie Buck. It was important to the colony's case to show that Buck was likely to pass on defective traits to her children. So this lawyer never even met who he was talking about. She was never in court. She was never there to, to have a proper defense. It was simply a dog and pony show of getting them to... Uh, uh, basically showing that Carrie was quote, feeble-minded, and finding ways to allow her to sterilize. Her lawyer, Irving Whitehead, did little on her behalf. He called no witnesses to dispute Laughlin's 
or other experts who favored sterilization. Not surprisingly, a judge upheld the decision to sterilize Carrie Buck. So in 1927, Carrie's Buck, Carrie Buck's case reached the Supreme Court, and there, and based solely on the transcripts, they voted eight to one to uphold the sterilization of Carrie Buck. They basically said, in part, that she was feeble-minded. She and if she were to not be sterilized, she would. She and others like her would become a menace to society and would would compromise the safety of others and would not be a benefit to society. That's pretty much, I'm paraphrasing there, but that's pretty much what the Supreme Court said in their judgment. A quote from the transcript of their judgment says that Three generations of imbeciles are enough because the, the court also believed that Emma Buck, Carrie's mother, also had intellectual disabilities, which we can't really verify, but they, had, they didn't want another generation of, quote, imbeciles to, to happen, so they thought by sterilizing her, it would send a message. The ruling to sterilize her had important consequences. She was sterilized in October 1927. She was paroled from the colony shortly after the operation with the stipulation that she report to officials annually. Over the years, Buck worked odd jobs on, in households and on farms. She married, was widowed, and later remarried. She died in a nursing home in 1983. As a result of this ruling, Carrie Buck's sister was also sterilized but was lied to and told that she was going in the hospital for to have her appendix taken out, and when she woke up, she was sterilized. She didn't find this out. This happened to her sister in 1928. She didn't find out that she'd been sterilized until 1980. Like, holy fuck, can you imagine 52 years of not knowing you were sterilized and then having to realize you could never have kids because the state thought you were feeble-minded because they're assholes and they're eugenicists and they're misogynistic? Holy fuck. That's just when I read that I was so sad. And I also read that when Carrie Buck before she died, she said, you know, that she really wished that she could have more kids and she was really sad about it and then they had taken stuff from her and then it really hurt her. And reading that that stuff I can't find it anymore. I didn't I didn't save it. I I couldn't find it again. But um reading that and doing research for this was just really really tragic and really sad and shows the emotional effects of sterilization and forced sterilization that disabled people feel when they're told that they they can't procreate because the state said no. This opened the doors for 7,500 people to be sterilized in Virginia alone from 1927 to when the act when the law was repealed in 1972. This means that thousands more were sterilized in the U.S. and across the world. As we move away from institutionalizing people with intellectual disabilities and move more into them living with their families or in community care homes or in independent living centers, however it is that they were getting support, a lot of the eugenics ideas around forced or coerced sterilization tended to be couched in language like, quote, sterilizing them for a better quality of life. 
So a lot of articles that I've found would say stuff like, we want to make sure they can enjoy their lives and we want to make sure they don't have the risk of pregnancy. So we are going to sterilize them so they can just enjoy life and they don't have to worry about all that, which is a really disgusting way of saying you don't get the right to have a baby because you it would it would be too much stress on you and you should just enjoy life and you should just be happy. What if an intellectually disabled person wants a baby? What if they want a family? What if that makes them happy? To couch it this way to give them a better quality of life to take away their right to have a child is wrong. Just wrong. That's also one of the reasons why I think ableism is so sneaky because of the way it can be used and the way the language is used to make it sound like it's actually supporting intellectually disabled people when really it's taking away their fundamental rights to be parents if they choose to. Another way that I saw it discussed in some of the articles that I was looking at when I was doing research for this piece was that forced or coerced sterilization was a decision that will benefit the family. So what that usually meant was when we're talking about intellectually disabled people who, are li who live with their family members as the primary caregivers, they were looking at the, the sterilization as a decision that would benefit the family so that the, the primary caregivers wouldn't also have to then take care of their disabled child's child. And they were looking at the stress on the able-bodied caregiver versus what the actual disabled person would want. I want to look at some cases that highlight this view that it's a decision for the family or they, the disabled person could have a better quality of life. And I found two cases that I really want to kind of dig through because they really highlight that, that the, the parent's desire was more important than the disabled person's rights. And so the first case I found was of Leanne Grady, and it was from 1980 in New Jersey. Leanne Grady was a 19-year-old who was, quote, afflicted with Down syndrome, not my language, it was the language in the article, who had Down syndrome. And according to the article and the, the case brief, had a mental capacity of a four-year-old. Her parents wanted the hospital to perform sterilization, but the hospital refused unless a court order was given. Just a little more about Leanne from the case brief that I found and how they talk about her. I think it's important that we look at how they talk about her and, and how they talk about her parents as well. Um, they say that since that time when they brought Leanne home, they decided to provide her with love and emotional support as well as all the physical necessities of life. Together with her parents, Leanne lives with a younger brother and sister who also treat her affectionately. Her formal education has consisted of special programs within the public schools. Over the years, she's been tested by school personnel who have recommended that she continue to participate in special classes. Although unable to read the words, she does recognize the letters of the alphabet. She has moderate success in writing her name. She has some ability to count low numbers, but it is not clear whether she counts by rote or with awareness of the function of numbers. In her conversation, she often fails to form complete sentences. 
At home, Leanne's activities include playing simple games, watching television, and taking short walks. She is capable of folding laundry and dusting. She can dress herself, but she cannot select clothes appropriate for the season or matching in color. Basically, this whole brief and this whole part is trying to highlight that Leanne Grady is not fit to be a parent. Um, one of the things I find troubling about this is that it says, although in a physical sense her sexual development has kept pace with others her age, Leanne's, mental, Leanne's severe mental impairment has prevented the emotional and social development of sexuality. She has no significant understanding of sexual relationships or marriage. And it goes on to say that when her parents found out that she was developing, instead of finding ways to talk to their daughter about sexuality, they decided to go right to the doctor and ask what to do. How do we fix this? How does this not become a problem? When I, when I, when I read that, that part really pissed me off because, yes, Leanne Grady was probably intellectually impaired. Yes, yes. She had Down syndrome. That's She was, probably. But she could also be taught about sex. And I think that regardless of whatever age she is, is cognitively, she could be taught about sex and touch and what is okay and what's not okay. The parents should have done more to teach her. The brief literally says that her parents believe that contraception is an appropriate precaution to exercise under the circumstances of their daughter's life. So rather than even looking at ways to teach her, they were immediately they were immediately like, let's give her drugs. And they urged the hospital to do it, and they urged the doctor to do it, and they all said, no, because we can't. But they really pushed her. They were trying to push their daughter to get sterilized. They were also afraid that she would outlive them, and then they wouldn't be able to provide care for her. And that, you know, that's a that, that's something I think we need to talk about. The, the a lot of these cases, the parents said, "I'm afraid from the well-being of my child," and that's, you know, what that's something we should be addressing more than let's sterilize these intellectually disabled people so they can't have kids. Let's look at how do we provide support to families that isn't let me sterilize your child. Let's look at supports that are actually going to make the disabled person feel empowered to have their own sense of sexuality if they choose to. Why aren't we doing that? And I realize and this case obviously was from the 80s, so the, the views on disability were much less progressive than they are today in the eyes of the law, but I really just wish they would have talked to her more. The court eventually decided that she couldn't be sterilized, and they decided that having the right to procreate is an important right, and it should not be withered just because the person in question cannot exercise it. So the court decided not to sterilize her, which I think was a good thing. But I also think that the parents need support, and these families need support, and we need to do more than just putting these laws in places that you can't sterilize somebody without providing proper social supports for families then who can teach their intellectually disabled children about sexuality and, and contraception and safe sex. And we need more because you can't just enact these laws and then 
not provide support. And that's where I think that a lot of the problems are. And you'll see in the next case that I'm going to talk about a similar thing is happening. In 1997 in Nanaimo, B.C., Sandra Crockett, a single mother of five, decided to have her 20-year-old intellectually disabled son, who was growing more sexually aggressive, castrated. She authorized a bilateral orchidectomy, which is the removal of both his testicles, youch, and then he became more relaxed and more sterile. But the operation was performed without her son's consent and brought her a ton of legal problems. Now, this article that I'm reading from is from the Globe and Mail from 2002, and it's really veers towards making the mother look like she's a sad mother who just wants to help her kid. But I don't believe that. I believe that she did it because she wanted to not have to worry about her son and she wanted that taken care of and she didn't want him to be sexualized because that would create more problems for her. And that really angered me because the whole article is like making her son out to be this really, this mother just trying to help her kid, which is, you know what? Taking away his sexuality is not that. She spent a whole bunch of time in a bunch of articles that I read saying that he would become aggressive and then he would start hurting people and he might get locked up or he might have a record or he might, you know, sexually assault somebody. And I just thought, you know what, he wouldn't if somebody taught him about sex and gave him the tools, no matter what his mental capacity is. If you gave him the tools to do, to do that and did your best to teach him, he might learn and he might be able to learn about positive sexuality as an intellectually disabled person. I, I mean, we know from talking with Galia Goodell in... I can't remember what episode, I think episode 113, we know that intellectually disabled people can learn about sex and they can have quite positive sexual relationships in their lives. This is not like a new thing. We need to start talking about these people as humans and stop putting the parental need above the, above the child's. Sandra Crockett went to court at the time of this article back in 2002 like four or five times to try to get to try to get them to because um, the the government of, of British Columbia was trying to was trying to to sue her for unlawfully doing the operation but she's countersuing saying that she needs to um, saying that this operation needs to happen the operation also made her son, have a higher risk of bone degeneration, a higher a higher risk of fatigue, a higher risk of early aging, and a higher risk of death. So I don't quite know if giving him if chopping off this poor boy's testicles were was really the way to go. I don't know if I think so. And I said boy there, I meant to say man. I don't know if, if chopping off this man's testicles was an appropriate response to Oh no, he might get sexually aggressive. Teach him then. Crockett said again in a bunch of articles that she wouldn't settle out of court because that would be akin to admitting she was wrong. Instead, she fired back at the trustee's office saying that it had no idea what it's like to care for a disabled person as her son. She said that the trustees only met briefly with her son. She said they've 
they've, the public trustees, wronged the doctors. They've wronged this hospital, and they've wronged me and my family to put us through all this. She said that her son can't write or read or ever hold a job, and his disability is the result of brain damage that occurred after his heart failed when he was six weeks old. She also said that she castrated her son so that he would never have a child because he is incapable of raising a child and to have them taken away from him when it's found out that he can't care for them would be traumatic. To this I say, teach, teach him what to do. Teach him how to take care of a child. Teach him. See what he can learn. Give him the benefit of the doubt and teach him. Or have somebody help you teach him. Figure, I just can't get around the fact that you would that these parents would go to the lengths they have to castrate their kids instead of trying to show them what to do i just don't think i just don't understand that I, i'm not saying it's easy and i'm not i'm not a parent of an intellectually disabled child so i don't know but i am a disabled person and if if my family took away my right to have a kid if I ever wanted to, in my case, that would be splooging in a cup and giving it to a surrogate. If that's what I wanted to do, I should have that right to do that. And I just can't imagine having my nuts chopped off because you were afraid I might have kids. I'm not sure what the outcome of the Sandra Crockett case was and whether she, whether she, what, whatever happened there. I think there was some, some monetary compensation provided from the doctors to him by law but I don't know if she settled out eventually I'm not, I didn't I couldn't find anything on that so if, if anybody knows what happened to the Sandra Crockett case in 1997 let me know the law that Sandra Crockett broke came from the Eve decision which was a case in 1986 very similar to that where a mother wanted her daughter sterilized and the court said no because sterilizing a disabled person is not um, is not a benefit to the actual person is of no benefit to the actual disabled person which again is great and the Eve decision there's a lot of stuff on it when I was doing research um, on how important the Eve decision is to give intellectually disabled people their personhood and I fully stand behind that of course obviously and I think that's great, but I do think there needs to be safeguards in these laws and, and social service supports for these families and for these individuals to get more than just, no, you can't sterilize me. Let's find ways to help you learn about sexuality in a way that is comprehensive for you as an intellectually disabled person. Let's find ways to teach you the realities of becoming pregnant, the realities of becoming a parent. Let's find ways to give you those options properly. I just want to do some more notable things I found out about forced sterilization now. I found out that Japan is apologizing to thousands of victims under the forced sterilization law there. About 16,500 people, mostly women with disabilities, were targeted between 1948 and 1996 under a Japanese law that aimed to stop the birth of children described as inferior. Surviving victims will soon receive a, quote, deep apology and a lump sum payment of 
28,700 US dollars or 21,600 pounds under the terms of a bill agreed between the ruling party and the opposition with legislation set to be submitted to Parliament back in April of this year. One of the women who was affected by this Japanese law was named Yumi Sato, who was 15 when she was sterilized in 1972. Sato was set to marry in her 20s, but when she was told that she couldn't have children, the person who proposed to her said they didn't want to marry her anymore. Official records suggested that Sato was sterilized because of, quote, hereditary feeble-mindedness, although, as with many cases, this diagnosis is disputed by the family. Another case of under this Japanese law, Yunko Izuka, whose fallopian tubes were tied in 1963 because the then 16-year-old was suspected of having a mental disability, tried to have the procedure reversed but was told it would not be possible. She says, they stole my life away. So, as with most public apologies from the state, they did too little too late, especially in this case. And the ripple effect of what they've done is going to hurt these families for generations, and I'm so sorry that that happened. But it also shows that this is not just a Western thing. This happened all over the world, and this is still happening in 2019 today. Take a look at the UK, for example. There has never been any laws governing the forced sterilization of disabled people in the UK, which means that it happens. The courts can intervene to ensure this is, quote, curtailed, but it has happened a few times recently, and I'm going to share one of those times with you now. As of 2015, a mother of six with learning disabilities can be sterilized, a UK judge ruled. Health authority and social services bosses had asked Mr. Justice Cobb to authorize, get this, forced entry into the woman's home and the use of, quote, necessary restraint, restraint and sterilization at a hearing in the court of protection. So basically, what the judge authorized was that they could just enter her home, remove her, and sterilize her. They argue that these moves were in the best interest of the woman who is 36. Yeah, possibly. It, it could be in the best interest of, for her. Maybe I, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't say much here. Maybe it is for her health. But do you have to barge into her house and make it like, what are you, the fucking Gestapo? Can you go into her house and talk to her? I don't know the level of her intellectual impairment. But fuck, try to talk. Don't barge into her house. That's horrible. That means if they wanted to show up at 3 in the morning and pull her out of her bed and sterilize her, they could do that. That's really wrong. Australia has a similar rule, although a problem with Australia is that they don't have nationwide records of how many people the courts have ordered to have sterilized, and some local jurisdictions are better at keeping tabs on the practice than others, which means that thousands of Australians could have been sterilized over who knows what time, and nobody knows, and that's just, the fact that they don't have records means they don't care, means that it happens indiscriminately to disabled Australians, and there are organizations like People with Disabilities Australia who are trying to prohibit the forced sterilization of people with disabilities, and it's still happening there in 2019, and that's, uh, that's pretty scary. There's a really powerful article written by Nicole Lee about her experience 
getting an abortion versus getting pregnant as a disabled woman and how her abortion was given was not given a second thought was thought to be deemed unemotional and and cold and clinical whereas her pregnancy was really questioned by the people around her because she was disabled and so um just a really powerful article which I'll link to in the show notes here Nicole Lee if you're listening if you listen to the show I would love to have you on the program to talk about your experiences let me know thank you for putting it out there obviously there's so much more than the little deep dive that I've done today in forced sterilization but I wanted to do do more on that because I just felt it was important I had seen some things in 2019 about forced sterilization all over the internet and I wanted to just talk about it more and I think it's something we don't talk about enough and I think it's disturbing that in 2019 we're still looking at the disabled bodies at disabled bodies as things we can mutilate and take away from without considering the emotional needs of disabled people and that's just really it's just scary that we're still having that conversation so I hope you enjoyed this one and my little deep dive into the research if you want me to research other things and bring it as an episode let me know But uh, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Bye. All right, friends, that's another episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on sex and disability. My name is, of course, Andrew Gerza, and thank you so much for listening and helping the show go. I really appreciate that you all listen and that you come back every week, and I love doing it, and I love shining a bright light on these topics, so thank you. If you want to follow my work, you can head over to www.andrewgerza.com where you'll find my writings, some cool videos I've been in, and you'll see where I've been talking, where I've been doing talks, and if you want to hire me to talk, you can do so there as well. If you want to follow me on the social media, you can put in all my handles on Insta, Twitter, and Facebook at TheAndrewGerza. If you want to follow the podcast specifically, you can follow us on Twitter at DisAftDarkPod or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash DisabilityAfterDark. This show is a completely independent production. I literally record the show here in my bedroom in Toronto, and that's awesome. So if you want to support this fully independent program, you can head over to Patreon.com slash DisabilityAfterDark, and you can pledge $1 a month to get the show early and get really cool perks like that. And I, I will give you a shout out on the air and thank you for your support. It would be super awesome if you could also leave a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast so that this show all about sexuality and disability, something we don't talk about enough, can get more traction and more people can hear about the show. Lastly, if you want to be a part of Disability After Dark, you can submit your suggestions, story ideas, or your minisodes to our email inbox, disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, we'll be back next time, right here on the program Shining a Bright Light on Sex and Disability, Disability After Dark. New episodes of Disability After Dark will be available every Thursday on your favorite podcast app. Also available to Patreon subscribers one day early on every Wednesday. Thanks for listening.
Copyright notice. Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Crippled Content Creations, with music by Chris Ujiuchi. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright 2019.